Let's do it. All right, welcome one, welcome all to episode 10 of the Xbox Expansion Pass, recorded on Sunday, December 8th, 2019. I am your host, Luke Lore, the Insipid Ghost, and in this episode, we're going to take a look at some of the best Xbox initiatives from this generation. We'll be discussing a two-skew Scarlet Market, and we're going to announce our must-play games of 2019. In the back half of this episode, we are extremely fortunate to be joined by the indie horror game developer Benjamin Rivers. Had a fantastic talk with him about his 2D thriller Worse From Death, along with kind of what it was like to work in the ID at Xbox program. If you're new to Xbox Expansion Pass, this is where we talk about all things in the game reverse as they pertain to the Xbox ecosystem. Let's get started. First up on our topic list this week is news that is resurfacing of a two-skew future for Xbox in Project Scarlet, with Kotaku reporting that once again, back on the table, Microsoft is considering having the Anaconda and Lockhart systems. Now, if you're unfamiliar with what this is, Anaconda is the more high-fidelity, premium console version, kind of akin to the Xbox One X. The idea that Scarlet would have a super-skew or a super-powerful version of it, whereas Lockhart would be kind of the slimline, trimmed-down version where you wouldn't have a disk drive and it might be more budget-focused of the two. Similar to how the Xbox One S is now, or probably more specifically the Xbox One S SAT Edition, uh, the one that doesn't have a disk drive. Now, what does this mean for kind of approaching next-gen? Would gamers want a $500 or $500 plus Anaconda version, a more expensive SKU, and then have a more approachable Lockhart vision that is more simplified and more budget entry? We saw in this past Black Friday that the best-selling console was the Xbox One S All Digital Edition, that sad edition where players could kind of jump in for 150 bucks, get into Game Pass, and check out the world and the ecosystem of Xbox. Is that what gamers are going to want going into next gen? For my part of this, the more concerning part is if Anaconda is $500 plus, is that something gamers are willing to dump down in a world where Microsoft has done some fantastic things moving forward as far as rebranding their consoles? We're going to talk about it later on in the show, but one of the things that they have done is push this Play Anywhere concept. Their exclusives are available on PC, as are a number of things that that are available through Xbox Game Pass, which you get via Game Pass Ultimate. Are gamers still going to want that super high premium cost system that runs everything at the very best it possibly can be, and you're paying $500 or more? For my money, I look at this... Uh, conversation. And I had a great Twitter discussion with Donnie and several people from the PSVG community. You should check out PSVG, play some video games. Uh, a great community. You guys should should give them a shout and give them a look. But had a wonderful discussion with them on Twitter uh, about kind of what it means to be the premium console. And if that's truly a selling point going into next gen, particularly when you look at the fact that Right now, available on the market since 2017, has been the Xbox One S. Now, no amount of sales or anything else has made the X or Xbox the number one place to be for games as far as the mainstream is concerned. I would imagine if you're listening to this show, you you likely have some affinity for the Xbox brand, uh, but you should certainly be able to recognize that PlayStation has outsold it 2 to 1, that the Switch is extremely popular, and that what Microsoft is doing is building towards their next gen. 
would a $500 console allow people to enter in at an appropriate uh, time or, or something that they would want to do when there is a cheaper alternative on the market? And perhaps more importantly, do you want to split your consumer base or your development base? And a lot of questions get raised with this. When I look at the next-gen systems and when I look at how you might want to win next-gen, uh, three C's come to mind. It's kind of something I just kind of thought up, but three C's, cost, catalog, and choice. Those are the things that I think will win the next gen for any of the exclusive console makers or, or whoever's entering into that market. The first and most important point being cost. You need a low barrier to entry or at the very least a barrier to entry that is not daunting for a consumer. Back in 2013, we saw the Xbox One launch at, at $100 more. Regardless of the Kinect, regardless of what it brought to the table or didn't bring to the table, launching at a price point that is $100 more than your competition is a mistake. So Microsoft has to find a way to enter into this next-gen battle with Scarlet, whichever version or versions they choose to market as their primary. They're going to have to compete with PlayStation, Nintendo, Stadia, perhaps Amazon, the PC world of Epic Games. They've got to find a way for cost to not be a reason that somebody opts out of their ecosystem. Having two SKUs could certainly do that, but I don't think their premium model should be more than 500 at all. I think actually 500 is a deal breaker for the mass market. Will I be entering into an Anaconda world or checking out at the moment right now? And I do try to put my money where my mouth is. I think in order to have an Xbox show, I need to be experiencing the best of what they have to offer. But with the mainstream consumer, with those who are not interested in just covering or, or discussing things, I can't imagine somebody wants to enter into a gaming world of, of $500 uh, or more, particularly when they're, a lot of those people that are willing to fork down that money are probably willing to check out multiple SKUs or multiple uh, systems. You know, if, if your main player, you, you mainly play games on a Nintendo platform, Lockhart or a cheaper version of Xbox might be a great second system. If you mainly play on PlayStation and you want to check out a PS5, the Lockhart might be a good entry to get you into that world. But do you want to spend, you know, the premium consoles on all of them? Not a lot of people have that in their wallet set or are willing to do that. So I think cost is the most important. Anaconda cannot be more than $500, or rather I should say it should not be, because that is just a too big a barrier to entry. That's too much for a plastic box in a world where you can play anywhere. xCloud is bringing you possibilities. I truly believe that Microsoft would do well to bring Project xCloud to its Xbox One family of systems. The idea that if you have an S or you have an X and a connection, you should be able to check out whatever is available in xCloud. And that might be how you get your Scarlet, your, your Xbox, whatever your next gen is, games to players that, know, that don't have that plastic box just yet or don't have access to purchasing a plastic box. So that might be one method of getting in, gamers into that world of next gen for Scarlet, uh, as would Lockhart and Anaconda. But cost, of course, is the most important. You've got to have an approachable cost point for any of your systems. Lockhart can't be $300 and Anaconda $500. Lockhart should be down in the, the $250 or below range to make it a an approachable and desirable second console for families that are not going to dive into that Anaconda and make Xbox their primary. Got to be approachable, got to be a, a cost point that brings people into your ecosystem because we have known for years now that it is not in hardware that companies make their money. It is in software. And now, perhaps changing that narrative up even a bit more, 
its services, subscriptions, microtransactions, and DLCs. And that is something that Microsoft has capitalized on quite well. The idea that Xbox is still around after a disastrous Xbox One launch, after a Red Ring debacle, they're willing to adapt to market and market trends. They're bringing in xCloud. They're willing to put their games on other systems. They certainly want to survive, and they are breaking the, the mold of what is perhaps... Uh, thought of as the main way to win a console generation. So I am all for approachable cost points. I like the idea of a two-skew system, provided the cost is the important part. Now, following cost in the most important kind of reign of how you bring about a next-gen service is catalog. You've got to have a good slate of games. We know from, from multiple generations that having the most powerful console doesn't mean Jack Diddley if you don't have the games to back it up. PlayStation 3 was more powerful, didn't have the games, didn't do well out the gate. You look at the Wii U, was more powerful at the time than its competition, barely, mind you. Uh, didn't have the games to do it, and then later on, it was left in the dust. And so, when you look at this, the Xbox One X didn't have the catalog to sell better than the PS4. You've got to have a great first-party set of exclusive games that are available on your platform. Now, that platform, of course, Xbox, is changing because you can access on PC via Play Anywhere, because xCloud is a thing. Nothing wrong with that, though. It's, a, it's associated with the Xbox brand. Catalog, I think, is a concern that is being addressed and has been addressed in recent years. We're seeing them acquire studios. We're seeing them build forward. When we saw Grounded announced most recently, it is very clear that that is not meant to be the mainstay flagship title for Obsidian, but it's meant to say, hey, you're going to get an exclusive game from our studios one a quarter, perhaps, once at one every three to four months, an exclusive game that you can only get if Whatever service you're using says Xbox on it, whether that is a web-based service like xCloud, a physical box like an Xbox, or uh, somewhere in between using it with a PC. Fine by me, they're addressing catalog. So you've got cost, you've got catalog, and lastly, you've got choice. And in choice, we're talking about another C by accident, crossplay. The idea that you can play with people in other places. When I jump on to Call of Duty and I play with my friends on PlayStation, sweet, I have a choice. Do I need to play on my PlayStation that's downstairs, or do I just walk up to my game room and play on my Xbox and I'm still enjoying game time with Mr. Badbit? When I played Gears of War with Sean Capri of the Xbox Drive, he was probably on his PC. Many times he was on his PC when we played Gears. That's choice. The ability for a gamer to you know, pick up their controller and via their own choice, play the games they want to play with their friends wherever they are. That's how you win a console generation. Cost, catalog, and choice. Those are the most important methods to bring community into your, your service base, into your ecosystem. And that's what one this show talks, talks about, but that's also how you win generations. That's also how you win gamers over. It's, about, it's an industry, and it's about making money. And if you've got people in your ecosystem, Microsoft will make money. And in doing that, they're going to bring gamers great games, great experiences. Now, if Microsoft stumbles in cost, catalog, or choice, uh, they, I don't see them rolling back on catalog or choice because they've invested so much money. If they stumble on cost, I think that would be a huge blow to them. Because for all the family-friendly initiatives, all the wonderful things they've done this generation to course correct. And let's talk about those for a moment, and then we'll round back. Look back at this generation, guys, from the disastrous Don Matrick uh, sales pitch of the original Xbox One VCR edition. And then you look forward. In the, in the time that we've had this generation, Microsoft has brought to the table backward compatibility of Xbox 360, 
backward compatibility of OG Xbox, the type of emulator where you put your disc in that you already own and you're playing it. They've brought to the forefront Enhanced for X games. They've brought uh, backward compatible games for free. They're enhancing them and including them in services like Games with Gold, which is new in this generation. Designed to compete with PlayStation Plus at a time where Microsoft certainly needed something to talk about, Games with Gold came out this generation. Then they rolled out Xbox Game Pass. And Xbox Game Pass, of course, brought hundreds of titles to the forefront. We're seeing new indie and AAA titles being added all the time. The idea that those AAA titles are not necessarily bound by date. A lot of, a lot of games are launching day and date into the service, regardless of whether or not they're first party. That's a great sign. That's something to be excited about. Game Pass Ultimate was introduced, which brings in Game Pass for PC. Includes uh, Microsoft Games with Gold. Includes uh, the idea that you can play online with anyone. Play Anywhere was announced in this generation. And then lastly, accessibility. Throughout this entire generation, we've seen software, games like Gears of War 5, get a perfect rating for accessibility in gamers. We've seen software uh, bring more players in and not exclude players based on any type of disability they may or may not have. We've also seen the adaptive controller come out. We've seen button remapping be introduced. Even something as, as wonderful but very niche as American Sign Language availability offered to gamers in a number of different platforms. Mixer was introduced. Those are all things that we've seen in this generation that are designing the Xbox ecosystem to move forward into next gen and next to Scarlet. And those are very approachable talking points, but we actually don't hear a lot about them in the mainstream because it is only fans that have used it or are currently in the ecosystem that have access to it. The one prohibiting factor in this next gen going forward into Scarlet could be cost because as I said, catalog and choice, those aren't going anywhere. Too much has been invested to it. If Microsoft is to launch and launch well, they have got to, got to keep those costs approachable. Whether or not it's it's set to be the second system for a family, maybe they're diving into PS5 all the way, and they want that second system, that Lockhart edition. Or whether they're going to be investing full-on into that Anaconda, into the best of the best, the optimized version uh, of Xbox, we certainly need to see cost be something that is accessible. You should not need to get a second job in order to pay for your system. You should not have to, to take out you know, a second or third mortgage in order to pay for a plastic box. That's not what, what Microsoft wants. That's not what gamers want. And here's hoping that it all works out appropriately. Political landscapes might change taxes. Got to adapt to it. Doesn't matter. Gamers don't care about that. It's got to be approachable regardless of where you are. And that all, you know, takes into account that there would be a two-skew system. If there's not a two-skew system, if they don't approach with that, that kind of uh, high premium and that S version, similar to what you get with iPhones and the like, Fine, fine. Cost still matters. Cost is still your most important point. So here's hoping Microsoft gets it right. Here's hoping that uh, Xbox and gamers and fans of video games across all platforms are able to access the next generation in one way or another via services like xCloud, via PC, Play Anywhere, or any other way. I mean, there's rumors that PlayStation is going to be bringing some of its exclusives to PC. Sweet. You're telling me I have another way to play God of War? I don't need to worry about playing or buying this version, that? Great. Cool. I'm all for that. All for that. More people playing great games is how we win for as gamers. So I am all for that. Now, I mentioned PlayStation. Let's roll into this next topic. It is interesting to see that Sony has announced a state of play on December 10th, and that's two days ahead of the Game Awards on December 12th. So, you know, depending on when you're listening to this, that it might have already passed, as have the Game Awards. But what I find fascinating about this is this reminds me a lot of XO19, 
you know, you had E3 this year, you're dropping an inside Xbox, what are you going to announce if you can't talk about Scarlet? What is Sony going to announce and discuss if they're not going to break anything at the Game Awards, and maybe they don't want to talk about PS5 just yet? I would imagine you see some news along Resident Evil 3, which has been leaked and, and kind of hinted at here. And in the wake of Resident Evil 2 Remake, I'm all for a Resident Evil 3 Remake. You probably see Ghosts of Tsushima and, who knows, maybe even hear about a, a streaming service that, that is meant to rival xCloud or meant to rival Game Pass Ultimate. Maybe they're making changes to PlayStation now. Either way, if Sony brings good things to the table, that will continue to push Microsoft to bring the best to its gamers and maybe just have an impact on us in a way that we don't quite see at, you know, early on. But they are laying the groundwork, they are lining up their weapons, getting ready to fire into next gen, and I love it. The, way, the more competition, the better it is for gamers heading into trying playing great games in 2020. And man, let's talk about that for a moment. I mean, look at that, we're just rocking and rolling here. I've been playing Halo Reach, the remastered 4K gorgeous Master Chief Collection version, which, by the way, sold you know north of 1 million over on Steam. We're talking about Play Anywhere. We're talking about accessibility and choice. That sold over a million copies over on Steam, getting more players into the Xbox world, into the Halo world. Talk about it. I mean, Halo Reach is a fantastic story mode. If you're into story or you like first-person games with, with great narratives, you absolutely need to check out Halo Reach. It's in Game Pass if you've got it. If you don't want to have it, I think it's something like 10 bucks, and you don't want to get Game Pass, but do it. Get it on Game Pass. Why wouldn't you? Try Halo Reach. If you're the guy that doesn't really like first-person shooters, give it a go. Drop it on easy and experience that storytelling that has not yet been recaptured in a Halo game. There's a reason it's selling so well. There's a reason it's concurrent players on multiple streaming platforms, Twitch, Mixer, and the like, are all doing extremely well. I played it. I did three hours of SWAT on stream. I'm loving it. I can't wait to dive into that campaign once again. The remaster looks incredible. And talk about bringing Halo back to the forefront in a way that Halo Wars 1 and 2, while great games, did not bring the conversation back, the way the Master Chief Collection didn't bring them uh, the conversation of Halo back into this next gen, it now is. Reach is doing it. Reach is bringing people into the world of Halo, bringing people to check it out, realize why this is a powerhouse, and provided Infinite delivers, you've got a totally new generation of people ready to check out the world of Halo. Because that, that interest level had stagnated. Five disappointed people in terms of story, four disappointed people in terms of multiplayer. I mean, you've got a lot to enjoy in both of them, but it didn't set the market on fire when you've got to compete with games like Modern Warfare, games like Destiny, uh, and, and so on. So if indeed Reach is reactivating interest level for the nostalgic fans who want to play some of the best that Halo has to offer, if indeed, pardon me, if indeed fans are being reintroduced to Halo and new fans are welcomed into that world, what a great win for Microsoft. What a great way to generate hype for, for uh, Halo Infinite, for the Xbox brand, the fact that it's over there on Steam and it's dropping with Xbox Game Studios to start off. I mean, I'll tell you this. If you're away from the Master Chief Collection and you've not taken a look at it recently, all new menus, it's loading faster, it looks gorgeous on a 4K TV. I mean, talk about sticking with it. That game launched disastrously. Or that collection launched disastrously. The games each played well. But man, what a bad launch for Master Chief Collection, and what a great lesson learned about backward compatibility, bringing games forward, and sticking with it. So props to Microsoft for that, props to 343, uh, and props to the gamers for giving it another shot and another go. There is a lot to enjoy about the Halo Reach 4K 
uh, update. It is absolutely wonderful, and I'm enjoying getting new achievements. The fact that I can jump on and play with people, it is fantastic. I will give a quick heads up to you, though. You're going to have to adjust those controls because, man, the, the game that was that was in 2010, that does not play the same way now. You're going to need to update it. I used Universal Reclaimer, which only the nerds would understand, but it, it modernizes controls. And that was very, very comfortable. Big shout-out to uh, Kevin Butler and Joseph Moran. Had a blast playing Halo Reach with them. Thank you so much for jumping in on stream with me. To those of you who did, such a good time. Such a good time over there. So check out the Master Chief Collection. Check out Halo Reach. Awesome to see that raising interest for the Halo universe. Now, we have to talk about the must-play games. I wanted to set up uh, a conversation about what it meant to be a must-play game in 2019 and kind of skew away from the best of 2019, the best game, the one, that, the game of the year conversation. And had a great conversation with Ryan, who uh, streams over on Xbox Canada and at Easy Encore, both Mixer channels, mixer.com slash Xbox Canada, mixer.com slash Easy Encore. Ryan, he, he called me out. He's like, Luke, I don't, I don't get it, man. You, you say you don't like awards, but you're doing a must-play award. And I was like, well, what I actually want to clarify is that I love awards. I love celebrating games, celebrating uh, something that we can enjoy. If you enjoyed the game, you should be reaching out, telling the developer, telling the publisher, hey, I loved this, I loved that. Go check out and celebrate with those developers because that's art that they are creating. Uh, but what I need to be clear about in my messaging is that the game of the year, that moniker, that title, I don't think it holds the same weight that it once did because at one point the gaming industry and gamers only had a few to choose from. They only had a few games to choose from. And now we struggle with, you know, putting a spotlight on a lot of different great games, a lot of different availability titles, uh, visual, like seeing what is the best of the best or something to be enjoyed for this type of gamer, that type of gamer. And so with the XCP Must Play Awards of 2019, for this show's Must Play Awards, it's really just about saying, hey, if you like this game, you should go check this out. If you like this genre, rather, you should go check this out. And so I selected a few. Uh, that I think are worthy of being spotlighted. I've also got a few lists from other people that, that are writing in, and you can continue to write in throughout the end of 2019 with what your must-play 2019 list is. Uh, as far as this show is concerned, it's really just about, hey, is it available on Xbox, uh, and did it come out in 2019? And that's really the, the, all we get. I just want to know that you are celebrating the games that you like, and that's the idea with these awards. Will I be watching the Game Awards on December 12th? Absolutely. Absolutely. Will I be celebrating for those people that are getting to enjoy their games? Absolutely. Will I be mad if Control doesn't win? Absolutely. Crazy people? Of course. Of course. No, the idea is to celebrate and enjoy games. That's why we have this show. That's why I do this show. That's why I get to talk to developers when I do. It's about celebrating games. So let's move into that conversation of what the XEP Must Play Awards are. We'll be la launching and announcing them on Twitter outside of this show, hoping to bring more people in and check out XEP. But let's talk about the winners, I guess, just the selections that I made for XEP's Must Play 2019. All right, first up on our list is Gears 5 from The Coalition. When The Coalition took control of the Gears franchise in 2014, the mission was to raise the bar of Gears of War. It was an established fan favorite, favorite franchise, and they absolutely uh, settled worries of their ability uh, with Gears 4. But in Gears 5, 
players see this taken to the next level. There's an incredible story that blends the cast of old and new characters. It allows for an approachability. New fans can jump in and check it out. You're welcomed into the Gears universe at a narrative level that we haven't seen in Gears of War before. Gears 5 has a wide linear level design and it offers uh, incredible elements of discovery in different biomes. And if you want to stray from the critical path, you get little nuggets of, of brilliance here and there. Conversations that are ha being had between NPCs, little Easter eggs from Gears of War games of old. But if you maintain on critical path, you've still got a great narrative with a new cast of characters, you're not being hampered by the old world of Gears, uh, and you have incredibly smooth weapon tuning and movement throughout Gears 5 that is absolutely the apex of what we've seen so far in the Gears universe. Gears 5 is a must-play for fans of single or cooperative gameplay. There are com is a competitive mode, and that competitive scene is there, but if you're a fan of single-player narratives... Jump in and play by yourself. Experience this wonderful world. Put on your headphones. Put it on a 4K TV. Enjoy the narrative of Gears 5. If you got Game Pass, xCloud, you got more ways to access it. It's on PC. Check out Gears 5. There's something for everyone in that title. It is a must-play 2019 uh, XCP Award winner. World War Z. Now, this is one from Saber Interactive. It's a third-person shooter. It's four-player co-op. There's millions of zombies. Now, World War Z casts aside its narrative restrictions brought to you by its Hollywood or narrative counterparts in the books, and it's really just about pure zombie-killing joy. It can best be described as a game that we all wish Left 4 Dead 3 was. It's a fantastic third-person shooter in which players mow down absolute rivers of zombies to their heart's content. And when I say rivers, guys, I mean that there are actually rivers of bodies of zombies moving towards you. It's insanity how gorgeous this looks. And it's a little daunting when you first see it, but it's so impressive. This is a third-person shooter that has a variety of weapons, upgrades, and zombie types to mix up gameplay. But I'm telling you, you won't care. It's about killing zombies and having a blast. If you enjoyed the Left 4 Dead games of old, the visual aesthetic of bringing it into third person is as terrifying as it is gleeful. W or WWZ. World War Z is a must-play game of 2019. Stepping away from our third person games is uh, a game that I want to highlight, and that is Sparklight of Red Blue Games. Now, we had Edward over on the show a few episodes back for an interview, but I will tell you this. Sparklight, it's a game for fans of Link to the Past to rejoice in. In 2019, developer Red Blue Games brought to the storefront this gorgeous, pixelated world of Sparklight. Players are dropped into the world that is absolutely echoing with nostalgia from the 16-bit era, but with modern animations, and it's just the right amount of procedurally generated maps to keep things interesting. You play as a hero, and you're guiding your hero through the world. You're fighting against bosses. You're upgrading your own safe haven town. You're going to be treated to a delightfully charming story that old-school gamers will get lost in. It's wonderful to just move through this world that has been described as steampunk Zelda with guns and gadgets, and it is such an accurate accurate descriptor of what Sparklight is. Do indeed, do yourself a favor, check out Sparklight. It's on the Xbox store. It's on a couple different platforms, so if you don't want to check it out on Xbox, do put Sparklight in your queue, put it on your holiday list, check out the game Sparklight from Red Blue Games. Next up on our list is Jedi Fallen Order from Respawn Entertainment. Now, Respawn has never made a bad game. We've seen Titanfall, Titanfall 2, uh, we've seen Apex Legends, all three very well received, but absolutely very different than what they were saying they would bring to the table in Jedi Fallen Order. And there was certainly a mixed reception 
when they announced the Jedi Fallen Order would be a Star Wars game that followed the Soulsborne formula of parrying and dodging, and set between episodes three and four. Lots of inquisitive minds uh, were, were talking about it, but they weren't confident in whether or not Respawn could pull it off, and they absolutely did. These concerns were immediately laid to rest when, upon release as gamers were treated to an incredible array of accessibility options that adjust for players' skill levels. There is a story mode that allows for players who are less comfortable with the Soulsborne formula to just enjoy the world and narrative that Respawn crafted and built. And that is how I entered into that. I started on story mode and realized as I went through it that I was actually getting better at it, and I was able to up it to normal mode as I pleased, drop it down as I pleased. The Each Planet was ripe with Easter eggs for longtime Star Wars fans, but it had a contained story that let gamers just enjoy the Star Wars world if they weren't really into that universe. For any fans of Fallen Order, or any faults, rather I should say, of that Fallen Order has, there's an incredible feel to the lightsaber, there's impeccable sound design, there's brilliant voice acting, and there is an adorable droid in BD-1. For any faults it has, and there are several, Jedi Fallen Order has to be one of the best Star Wars games ever made, and is easily a must-play title of 2019. Next up on the XCP must-play list of 2019 is Blair Witch from Bloober Team. Now, this one absolutely terrified me. Blair Witch, there, if there were any concerns as to why Blair Witch would be kind of resurrected and brought into the game space with its relative obscurity now in the mainstream, it was once a huge name and a huge namesake. But who was really concerned about Blair Witch in 2019? Any of those concerns were quickly put to bed. Blair Witch launched into Game Pass exclusively at the time and brought gamers into the world. It's a first-person narrative uh, adventure that's kind of built to manipulate players' perceptions of the world, and it, it provides a terrifying atmosphere. I'm telling you guys, I streamed this game start to finish uh, over on Mixer. I was, al- I almost peed my pants twice. Not a, not a joke at all. It was terrifying. Play Blair Witch with the lights off. With the sound on high, make sure your door is locked so nobody can get in. This game is terrifying, and for fans of horror, it is a must-play in 2019. It's atmospheric. Check out Blair Witch. It's now available on multiple consoles. It is still in Game Pass. Mm, It is a good one. Congratulations, Bloober Team. XCP must-play 2019. Another must-play game of 2019 is The Outer Worlds from Obsidian Entertainment. Now guys, The Outer Worlds, it launched on multiple consoles, but entered day and date into Game Pass, which allowed me to check it out, because the RPG world of, of the, from the Fallout creators and that style of Fallout games as The Outer Worlds is in, it wasn't one that I was super into, but the approachability of Game Pass allowed me to check it out. Outer Worlds is a modernization of that Fallout formula. You'll find yourself progressing through a story that is ripe with choice, has beautiful and incredible landscapes, a a color palette that is just inviting. There's first-person combat, there's lots of dialogue trees, upgrades to fit your character into any number of classes and combinations therein. Uh, Not everybody who starts Outer World is going to finish it, but the conversation that surrounds Obsidian, that surrounds Outer Worlds for RPG fans and non-RPG fans alike, uh, makes this a must-play and must-check-out game for 2019. A roughly 20-hour story, replayability for those who are interested, it is worth putting on your radar, it is worth checking out, it is worth playing in 2019 as a must-play title. Do give Outer Worlds from Obsidian Entertainment a look. Next up is Resident Evil 2. Now I gotta tell you, the Resident Evil 2 remake, I was lukewarm on it at first, and the more and more after I've distanced myself from the ending, I think to myself, what a fantastic remake Resident Evil 2 was for a long-beloved original title. 
gorgeous environments and a modern control scheme that take kind of the best of what the Resident Evil franchise has offered in Resident Evil 4, Resident Evil 7, uh, and kind of bring it into a modernization of that story. The imposing Mr. X is stalking you through the entire game. You get a sense of anxiety. It accompanies you throughout. You're never sure when Mr. X is going to bust through the door. There's some amusing mods out there that's nothing to do with it. But man, if Thomas the Tank Engine was chasing me, oof, would not like it. There's a sparse ammo supply that keeps players playing a horror game versus just a third-person shooter, which is fantastic. We have a third-person action game that is a terrifying thriller. And now another staple in the horror games that makes it one of the best of 2019. It is up there with one of the best games of 2019, and you should absolutely do yourself a favor and check out Resident Evil 2 Remake. Another XEP must-play of 2019 requires a bit of, I would say, clarification, and I included this on here, recognizing that this game might not be for everybody, but I want to say it, and I want to say it clearly. Call of Duty Modern Warfare from Infinity War. Now, if you are not a fan of, of multiplayer competitive scenes, or you don't like getting, you know, killed by a camper that's way across the map and, and throwing out a claymore and destroying your kill streaks. do not touch the multiplayer. You don't need to. That's not what is must-play about this. Instead, it is an incredible campaign that set the bar at first-person uh, immersion in 2019. Is Modern Warfare, it manages to create kind of this wonderful world that surpasses expectations for its old namesake. Uh, the weapons and the movement, they all feel wonderful. The weapons feel weighty. The movement feels like you're heavy. It doesn't feel like you're running across walls. The sound design does an incredible job of bringing that modern combat style into the gamer experience. The multiplayer has some frustration to it, so distance yourself from that, but instead look at the great writing of the campaign, the great acting of the campaign, the animation of the campaign. When you're moving around in night vision, it's imposing, it's nerve-wracking, it's scary. Modern Warfare's campaign stands out to me as one of the best first-person shooter narratives that I've seen in a long time. It stands up there with Halo Reach. It stands up there with some of the best gameplay I've seen in a first-person title. So if you're like me and, and multiplayer is not really for you in this setting, but you want a great first-person story, do check out Modern Warfare. I'm sure it'll be on sale uh, a number of different times as the Call of Duty games are wont to do. Modern Warfare is a must-play in 2019. The last of the must-play games for XEP this year Control from Remedy Games. Now, I have not been shy about the fact that I love Control. I thought Remedy did a wonderful job at crafting a world. It stands out among the best games of the year with its incredible storytelling and masterful art design. The atmosphere is unrivaled, and it brings to world a life that haunts the player from start to finish. But instead of just haunting them and pushing them away, it beckons them forward. Around every corner could be a new discovery or a monster that you don't know exists or doesn't exist. Uh, make itself available to you. There's an incredible map design that can be either extremely frustrating or incredibly engrossing because everything can be guide. You can guide everything there in real time without even using your map. I love the world that Control is. I am so excited to see what they're going to do with the DLC. There's some fantastic Easter eggs throughout. Some hints to possible directions they might take it. It is. Wonderful to see Remedy Games taking their, their skill level and their ability to the next level. I think Control needs more recognition. It needs more love from fans. We did do a giveaway a few days ago, a few weeks ago rather, on the Xbox Expansion Pass. Congratulations to Todd Oxtra who is playing that with, uh, with joy, I would imagine, because Control is a must-play game of 2019. So to recap, the XCP must-play list for this year, Gears 5 from The Coalition... 
We've got World War Z from Saber Interactive, Sparklight from Red Blue Games, Jedi Fallen Order from Respawn, Blair Witch from Bloober Team, The Outer Worlds from Obsidian Entertainment, Resident Evil 2 from Capcom, Call of Duty Modern Warfare from Infinity War, and Control from Remedy Games. Those are your must-play lists. I have honorable mentions in Apex Legends, The Division 2, and Forza Horizon 4's LEGO Speed Champions. All three of those games were great, were enjoyable, but I didn't count them as must-play for just anybody to check out. Let me know what your list is. I've got your list right now. Blaze Knight wrote in his. We've got a few others available uh, to read out on next week's episode, so do let me know what your next uh what your must play games are of 2019 i'm also going to keep uh collecting your favorite game endings if you've got game endings and why you love them do continue to write those to me over on twitter.com slash insipid ghost come join me on stream at mixer.com slash insipid ghost and feel free to shoot me an email anytime you like insipid ghost at gmail.com let us now transition into a fantastic interview with benjamin rivers i had such a great time talking to ben about his game worse than death about the world of the gaming verse that he has experienced as an indie developer working with big and small publishers about how he's gone about creating games from start to finish he he started in the mobile market and took us all the way to what his his latest game was in Worse Than Death, which is available as part of the ID at Xbox program. Some fantastic nuggets and ideas for the little stuff that you wouldn't think of. The minutia of kind of creating box art that suits the PlayStation Store, the Xbox Store, Steam, and the like. How do you go about doing it? Uh, I'll tell you this. He created his game or parts of his game, did a lot of its creation using an iPad. What a cool way to do it. So stand by for a wonderful interview from Benjamin Rivers talking about his experience in the gaming world. Thank you so much for sticking with me and sticking on XCP. Feel free to uh, rate and share each tweet as we go about. Stick tuned. Uh, to stick tuned. Stay tuned to the show for more and more interviews as we continue to grow. Thank you for being with me on this journey. Take care, everyone. Alrighty, we are very fortunate to be joined now by Benjamin Rivers, the creator of Home and Worse Than Death. Ben, thank you so much for joining us in here. We've got you in to talk about Worse Than Death and what it's like to be producing and creating horror games and working with ID at Xbox. Will you start off by letting our listeners know uh, just you know what your background is in the gaming verse? Yeah, sure. So I've been uh, making games professionally since about 2012. My wife and I actually run uh, what we call a little mom and pop studio here out of Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And uh, we're both from the design world. Um, we're we're old, we're oldsters. So we've been we sort of switched careers from doing design and other things. Uh, and my wife has her own clients. And then I decided after Home came out to just pursue this full time. So Home was our first commercial game, and we just sort of got real lucky. And timing worked out really well, and it was a it was a big hit relatively you know, relative to an indie uh, release back in the day, and allowed us to transition to doing this full time. And um, I've been making games every single day ever since now home was actually a mobile game at one point and then it made its way into the console space is that correct so it was originally designed to be uh, an ipad game when the ipad was first announced Mm -hmm. uh, i was really excited about that sort of large canvas and the idea of making you know something really cool and uh, creepy on uh, on a device like that but i didn't have the ability to make an ipad game yet Um, i was working in game maker studio which which i still am today um, and I could make, you know, PC versions and Mac versions of games at that point. So I decided to take the original design doc and convert it slightly to work with um, keyboard and mouse or keyboard rather. Mm-hmm. So the game first came out uh, on PC and then Mac eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, 
first off our own site and then off uh, Steam, um, where we had a just a shockingly huge launch. We were totally blown away. Uh, that was back. That was back when the uh, industry was a little bit different in terms of uh, selling indie games. Mm-hmm. And uh, then a few months later, Game Maker Studio got the ability to export to iOS, and I was able to go back to that original design doc, make sure those controls were in place the way I wanted them, and start porting to. Uh, mobile and then after that um we launched on console so we had a we had a process over i think from the initial launch on on pc it probably was about a year and a half to maybe even two years um that we were doing the various ports that's so fascinating and it's strange to me because i would imagine that given from the time around home came out and you began developing it through to now with worse than death more recently you've had to you've had to really watch the game space change and become perhaps more indie friendly in some areas and others maybe a bit more challenging? Oh, absolutely. It's it's totally different now. I mean, there's something in business where they always talk about uh, the sort of, you know, like saturation curves of, of any sort of business. Uh, whereas like one thing is becoming um, uh, more saturated and kind of hard, difficult mm-hmm. and, uh, and it kind of starts to wane in popularity or, or sort of ability to compete. Then something else kind of comes and takes its place. It's like a like a series of intersecting rolling hills. Um, and the indie game space was totally like that. We were lucky to sort of be right in there at the bottom of that hill as things were taking off and there was lots of opportunity. There was an increasing number of customers. There was way more areas in which you could start selling a game, you know, like on different stores, different platforms, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, you had eyeballs. It was much easier to sort of get eyeballs on your work. Um, now we're at a point where everything is like extremely saturated and just getting anyone to notice what you do. Uh, no matter who you are, is tough. Um, but for, especially for a small studio like ours, obviously. Mm-hmm. And that's actually one of the questions that came in from from one of the listeners, Garrett Bland. He he wanted to know with so many indie titles releasing every week, and I imagine he means on various platforms. How do you you know get eyeballs onto your content, regardless of platform? Which which how do you overcome that challenge? I think if anyone had a definitive answer to that they'd be a lot richer mm-hmm. than most people probably are. It's so it's so interesting. Like it, things change so quickly and really depends on the game. I mean, obviously the first thing you got to do is have a good game because no one's going to spend time on something that isn't worth uh their time. Mm-hmm. Um but it's like any other market, you know, it's like it's like watching something on Netflix or or whatnot. There's so much content that it's absolutely the the kind of buyer's market. Mm-hmm. It's you know, if you uh you know, example if you're on Game Pass, if you just want to play something you have at least a hundred options at any given moment Mm -hmm. um and that's already like a pretty big uh pretty big decision pool so to be out there on a platform uh like xbox or steam or anywhere else where you are competing with thousands of other games in some cases tens of thousands or or more um how you get people to look at your stuff kind of changes week to week Mm -hmm. Um, one thing that's really important, though, for smaller studios like ours is finding champions that really like your stuff and want to tell people about it. Because, look, we're a small voice and, you know, we've been around for a decent amount of time now where we have a reputation and uh, we're very fortunate that people generally know who we are once they, you know, see like the logo for one of our games. Uh, we've made lots of contacts over the years. But um, you're still asking someone to, to part with some money to to have like a experience that's going to last you know, in the case of home, like an hour and a half or worse than death, maybe three and a half or mm-hmm. alone with you is like six hours or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're asking people to pay you money to do something. And, you know, all of us can have a, have a million ways to spend four bucks or 10 bucks or whatever it is. 
And so that becomes a much tougher proposition. So, so the, the extremely long answer that I've just given you is no one has any idea, including myself, mm-hmm. uh, and that on Monday we might know, and on Tuesday everything might change, and we might have to sort of re-strategize. Well, you, you mentioned Game Pass. We know you're in the ID at Xbox program. Do Does Xbox, or in working with them, did that pilot any any kind of methods of messaging to the audiences? Because you guys have a unique style. You have a very unique style with the 2D pixel. I know Home and Worse Than Death were 2D pixel art and, and horror games, whereas Alone With You, I think, was more of a romantic kind of conversation dialogue type game. You have a unique style. So how do you message that you know, through different programs? Yeah, so I mean, a lot of it is trying to think about what it is the people at the end, like, you know, the actual players are going to play and what they're going to be interested in. With Home and Worse Than Death, the the clearest message is that, you know, they're horror games. They're meant to provide really cool stories uh, that in each game sort of handles storytelling a little bit differently. But um, what with Worse Than Death, we tried to point to people like, this is like renting a horror movie where mm-hmm. you're going to play this thing. Probably, probably you're going to play through the whole thing tonight mm-hmm. uh, or maybe two nights maximum, and you're going to have... Uh, this whole thing in your head at the end and you're going to have questions and you're going to be excited about things and you're hopefully going to want to talk to other people about it because Mm -hmm. you've you know you had some thoughts about stuff you saw along the way Mm -hmm. um so we try to um position things like that it's actually funny too because the way uh cover art works on the xbox store is actually really cool there if you notice uh, compared to a lot of other platforms xbox cover art is vertical not horizontal Mm -hmm. or not square that is a good point and and when we were producing the art, uh, we didn't do this because we were trying to make everything consistent across all platforms. But when we were producing the art for Xbox, I thought, oh, man, I just want to distress this artwork and make it look like a crappy old VHS tape now. Because that's mm. kind of the idea we're going for is this like um, uh, somewhat somewhat B-movie feel where it's like high melodrama, high intensity, you know, no subtlety, just just sort of blood and gore and, and cool uh, uh, cool stuff happening all the time, um, and it felt like like a cool home VHS release. You would take a chance on it. It really did. It's it's funny though that you mentioned the verticality and the display kind of methodology behind the different storefronts because I that's not something that would occur to me or I think to kind of the average Joe schmo out there. You know, scrolling through his various libraries of available games to check out or purchase or whatnot. So that's neat that you mentioned that. Uh, the Let's go to Worse Than Death, and for any listener, uh, I snagged this one a couple weeks ago after seeing you on a separate interview, uh, went through it in an afternoon, really enjoyed my time with it, and you're right, it does kind of have that B-movie, kind of intentional, old-school horror vibe. Talk to me about the decision to choose 2D and kind of this pixel art-esque approach in creating a horror game. Why go that route with horror? Sure. So when we did, this all stems from home, essentially. When we did home, there was a design decision made. Like, because we're graphic designers, or, you know, we were in a previous life, uh, everything kind of stems from our knowledge and experience doing that. And so part of that is creating a creative brief for what it is that you're trying to do for any particular project. Give yourself constraints and ideas and challenges and sort of like a, a little problem to solve. So with home, the idea was that I'm pretty sure we can make a horror game that messes you up and like makes you think just as much as something that is like really high budget with you know extremely um, high quality visual effects. We can do that with like the the most minimal uh, imagery possible. Mm-hmm. And so we designed home to to work that way, and we feel like it largely worked. Uh, and certainly, sort of the discussion that we've got since then and sales have have proved that. Um, but with worse than death. It was different because I wanted to create a game uh, that was actually like 
uh, fairly quick to produce because I find that when you work on a game for too long and they sort of languish in development hell, uh, a lot of the decisions you make, a lot of sort of the energy behind what you try to do, that stuff uh, falls by the wayside. And so Worse Than Death was like meant to be like us going back into the garage to record like a dirty rock and roll album and just leave all the fancy production tricks at home and just make something from the heart uh, that's really that's really fun. That's something we feel is really cool. So we did tests with like a bunch of different art styles. Um, and you'll notice like the game uses half high res art, half uh, low res art. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the low res stuff uh, I drew by hand on an iPad Pro just uh, using Procreate. No um, way. That's really yes. cool. So it was the first time we were able to do that because the software and the hardware was there. It was never there before. So we were able to do... Like, you know, I, I think I usually quote like three times more work than we thought was possible because it was the accessibility was was incredible. Um, and that was always a decision to use comic book style artwork. But for the low res 2D stuff, we knew that it worked with home. And I knew from playing other games even recently and, and, and you know, low res games that I played on other systems and handout systems and even on my phone that the imagination that you spark from having something that is not so deliberate and not so high resolution uh, is still there that that technique still works and we liked making really creepy backgrounds that suggested all these terrible things without having to uh show every single you know bloody uh, splatter in extreme detail mm-hmm. and you know even now when we still look at the game and see like the there's like man there's rooms in that game that are just like covered in gore and like really gross mm-hmm. uh and i love i love those areas but they're all low res but you 100 get the idea and that uh that sort of um, encouragement to use your imagination and kind of let yourself get in there and maybe gross yourself out uh, by thinking about it has always been part of the fun. And we think good horror stories uh, do that. All right, Ben. So you mentioned, you know, the idea that the player can terrify themselves kind of more than anything that you can create, blood, gore, and the like. Is that why at certain points in the game we see perhaps enemies that are not as super clear? Uh, there's some puzzle solving involved and, and you ha- you're scared from some situations but the the entity or the thing that you are fleeing from, it's hard to make out. Yeah, absolutely. So we actually did um, we did tests with that as well. We actually did several monster designs where you could see things. And they were much more explicit uh, and tested a whole bunch of options. And this is one of those cases where the original idea, the purest idea, was the best one. Um, and this is a rule that Nancy has whenever we make spooky games. She says, as soon as you see the monster, it's less scary. Mm. Uh, and so I tested all these things and she kept saying, I don't know, man. You know, like kind of remember the golden the golden rule of horror movies. Mm-hmm. So one day as a test, I was getting frustrated because we were doing all these, um, uh, trying all this artwork that wasn't quite working. And I just put the original stuff back in and then I just recoded how the enemies work so that the lighting worked a certain way and they were... Uh, mostly invisible and the way they blended the background worked a certain way and as soon as i did that i said yep that's it so the whole core of the game uh, in regards to hiding from enemies and using the sort of movement systems is about uh looking at your environment like paying attention to the sound your panic bar uh the lights you know all these things give you clues as to the proximity like the rumble and the controller all that stuff mm-hmm. um and you get all of this feedback you don't need to see anything Clearly, because everything in the game is telling you what's going on with this with this creature uh, whenever you're in a room uh, where one of them uh, exists. And it kind of just solved the problem for us. But it also went back to the what we feel is kind of a truism about um, horror content in general is that, yeah, you should you should be given enough rope to hang yourself with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's always way more 
interesting than just being shown like a giant CG monster or rubber mask or something. And that's that's kind of one of the aspects to Worse Than Death I really enjoyed was that I wasn't quite sure where, you know, a threat might be or and I'm trying to be vague for, for spoiler content. But I wasn't sure where a threat might be to my character or where I should go. And it was my own ambition that would indeed, you know, have enough rope to hang me. Because if I tried to get to, the, to a next section or to a next element or a position that where my character was safe, uh, if I just went a little too long out of nowhere, I knew it was coming because of vibration, because of sound. But then that atmospheric approach, uh, it told me more than any and seeing something coming, which would have allowed me to know where it was. Yeah, what's so fun watching other people play is that uh, even when you know that they're okay, you know, they're totally safe, the, you know, the, how they're moving is going to be fine, they're, it looks like they're going to clear a room easily, mm-hmm. um, the player never feels that, and that's the point. And we see people uh, play the game and just just kind of psych themselves out constantly, and it's so fun to watch because that's the point. The point is you're supposed to be on edge whenever, you know, one of those things is in the room and you're not sure how much uh, room you have. You don't know where the next hiding spot is. Uh, you know, do you remember if there was another hiding spot nearby? Mm-hmm. All that stuff is part of the experience. But like you'll notice, we kind of offload that all all of that to you and your brain. We give you all the tools and we give you all the all the hints and all the visual cues and all the sound cues to do what you need to do. But um, it's always your decision whether you're going to run tiptoe, you know, try to book the cover, all that kind of stuff. And uh, what's fun is that everyone plays it a little bit differently. Well, okay, so when you when you're creating a horror game, which part comes first to you guys? Like how do you go about creating uh kind of the kind of the drawing board? Are you beginning with story? Is it is it a character you want to work with, a setting? What's your goal here? So, we the process ends up being different for every game, but the uh, genesis of it all is the same. Because I come from design and um uh draw comics and things like that, um, I tend to think of things in terms of scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like if you imagine any game that you love, um, there's probably a scene in it, whether it's like a set piece or an actual story beat or whatnot, mm-hmm. that first comes to mind. And I always try to think of a scene uh, that exemplifies what we're trying to do with a particular game. And then from there you think, okay, so who are these people in the scene? How do they get there? Where do they go after this? You know, what are the events that lead them to this moment? And what do we do from there? So I actually can't remember what the exact scene was for Worse Than Death, but there was one. I think it might have just been like a running and hiding moment with Holly or whoever it was. Mm -hmm. No, sorry, I do remember. It was an early draft where it was a character. uh, It was an early version of Holly, but she's outside in the snow uh, with her cell phone as a light source looking to meet up with her friends because something has gone terribly wrong. Mm Mm-hmm. And the whole moment was, okay, what's she doing in this town? How does this all work? So that starts. And then what we do is we create a story outline, um, really basic to think of like, okay, what are we looking at here? Is this a, is this like a one character uh, kind of situation? Is this like a psychological Silent Hill, like really mess with you sort of uh, situation? Is it more action oriented? Is there something where um, uh, the character, uh, there needs to be like an ensemble cast or other people involved? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the main things that we thought of for worse than death were, you know, we want this to basically be like an X-Files episode. Like you're always running. The whole point of the game is running. Mm -hmm. You'll notice that you run from every single level to every other next level. That's true. Whenever, whenever something happens, you make a new discovery. The answer is always, you got to keep running. Um, and that's like the X-Files. Like there's always a joke that every time Boulder pulled his gun in the X-Files, his, he would lose his gun. It was like a 100%, uh, truism. 
And then chances are, if, if one of the characters pulled their gun, something would happen. And then they have to go running after somebody else. Mm. So we we like those moments. And then we were building these little beats. Like, okay, here's the thing. We we, we want to make sure this is something that always happens. We like how this flows. Um, and the thing that we did differently for Worse Than Death uh, from Home is that with Home, the whole thing was structured around the narrative. So, you know, you have to make decisions in Home and that affects the actual plot like what happens is entirely dependent uh, on what you do and the choices you make mm-hmm. so that's a different sort of interaction with worse than death we knew that we wanted to write a more specific plot because it felt like uh like like i said about renting a movie or sort of reading a good book we wanted you to go on this particular journey yet and at the end go oh man that was great you know i love this character i love what happened here i can't believe this happened so I knew that there was going to be specific moments that had to be in there in the game. So we outlined those. And then the difference here was I said, I want to make a game where the levels the levels come first. This has to be uh, like a gameplay and action-focused game as opposed to being so story-driven. And that was an excuse to sort of break old design habits and to come up with a new way of making a game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some, honestly, sometimes when you make games that are very story-heavy, you'll you hear this from a lot of developers um you get bogged down real quick well i was thinking because 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 the beginning of worse than death it is very dialogue heavy as you're kind of setting the scene and introducing us to the characters which is you know it's about exploring friendships and and relationships between people as they go through this town there is a lot of dialogue kind of front-loaded in the game yeah and yeah yeah and we cut that all down as much as humanly possible like that went through so much editing where it was all three times longer we said we only need to give you exactly what we need to do or need to know to, to understand the stakes, understand Holly, give her a reason to care about all this stuff. And then as like one reviewer put it, we want you to go from like zero to 100 in like 60 seconds. Mm-hmm. And how many iterations of, of rewrites and editing do you go through to get to a point where you're satisfied with it? That depends on the scene. Uh, I would say the front, uh, like the bar scene, uh, which is the opening area, went through six rewrites. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say the gym, which is the uh, like the high school reunion itself, which is the following scene, probably went through about eight rewrites. Mm-hmm. Uh, and everything else really depended on the moment. Some things were written once, made sense, worked, and were there till the very end until we shipped. Uh, some things went through extreme rounds of revision just when I realized, oh, there's a better way to tie in you know, this plot point to this plot point so players make a connection. Or there's a better way to simplify... Um, a motivation so that rather than mentioning two separate things that a player now has to remember if you just mention one and reinforce it they'll pick up on it more easily and they'll go oh these things mean that someone was here that's important Mm -hmm. um and so there's like infinitesimal stuff like honestly i would say god even two weeks before we shipped really easily Two weeks, two days, probably like wow. two days before we like submit to cert or whatever. We're 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 just double checking and saying like, does this make sense? Uh, I think that's common too. It's just it's just something you do. Hmm. Well, okay. So dan- tangentially related to that, how how much how much editing I suppose or crafting do you have to do to the puzzle element of the games? Like this puzzle's too hard. This one's too easy. I wasn't happy with our, our testing of this because Worse Than Death does have quite a few puzzle moments in it. Yeah, and that was always a challenge too. Like. First, we wanted to make a game that had like really cool adventure game style puzzles. And then once we realized we could do all the art uh, on iPad Pro, we, 
like I said, we basically tripled the output, so we can do way more because it's it's the process is much um, much more streamlined. Mm-hmm. Some puzzle, I mean, there are puzzles that got axed completely, and they were fun puzzles, but they just didn't fit with sort of the story moments or what Holly needed to be doing or whatnot. Um, there are there was a puzzle that was in the initial demos that we showed partners, you know, a year and a half ago, two years ago, that were shown at that demo and then never used again. But for example, a puzzle that actually ends up being someone's fa- uh, like a lot of players' favorites, which is one of the ones in the sawmill uh, involving the red and blue buttons. Hmm. That's all I'll say. Um, that ends up being a like the puzzle most people mention as their one of their favorite puzzles, and that was done in thirty minutes, and it was the like the last major thing implemented in the game because we needed another puzzle, and the idea I had before just wasn't working. Mm-hmm. So. It's and, and there was a, there was one puzzle that went through that got changed back and forth I think about eight times because we went no it should reference this oh that doesn't make sense no it should reference this okay now that doesn't make sense because we changed this plot point uh, so everything was dependent on kind of what was happening all around it it's funny I had a notepad out with me multiple times I had people in chat while I was streaming it like giving me advice or hints so go check this go check that and I was I was doing. Puzzle, I was puzzle solving outside of the game in my mind and on paper, just trying to visualize certain things. It's funny uh, to, to hear it from the developer side. That's really, really cool. That's, yeah, that's great to hear that you had a notepad too because um, all of our tester did, testers did the same thing and uh, we like when we hear people do that because it, I mean, that's what I did. I think I still have a notebook that has like all my old Silent Hill sketches in it mm-hmm. or whatnot. Okay, so uh, one last kind of question that, that relates specifically to Worse Than Death before I kind of move away from that. Uh, what games scare you? What games put you in a position where you as the player are, are fearful? Ooh, that's an excellent question. And while you I mean, stall for time, the reason I ask is I'm curious if any of those games that scare you have elements that inspired aspects of Worse Than Death or if indeed you know it was... X-Files and a few kind of more uh, movie-based inspirations. Yeah, so, the, okay, there are two There are two elements to that because on one level, there's the element that's, like, there are par- uh, parts of games that scare me from a psychological point of view mm-hmm. where the the story is just really getting under your skin or the truths that it's uh, encouraging you to discover are uncomfortable or, or disturbing. Um, some of that re- is in regards to gameplay. Some of that is where, you know, like, the game makes you resolve things and uncover things and solve puzzles that only bring you closer to this sort of terrible truth. And that makes you go like, Oh, it's like, I don't even want to do it because, uh, every step forward is just getting worse and worse. And I'm, you know, these suspicions I harbor, these fears that I have, are maybe going to be proven correct. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's like a great, that's a great way to tell a mystery where you, uh, give your audience something that they think is going wrong. And then, give them a way to perhaps prove that so, uh, prove that to themselves, even if that ends up not being true in the end. But people just, it's like opening a door knowing there's something terrible on the other end. Mm. Um, but on the gameplay point of view, there is, there is a fear in, I mean, there's a fear in losing progress, um, which is actually why we in- introduced the extra difficulty modes in Worse Than Death, because some people really do love taking the challenge and some people want to have, you know, one credit to play a game on and then ha- like panic and, and sweat when they realize they're, they're about to lose that credit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's also a fear in being the person who sends a character that you like towards 
a series of events you know are terrible. Uh, and that is when you have a good tight um, uh, a good tight connection between gameplay and story. So some some games just have you you know accomplishing tasks and then they're telling you a story, but those things aren't necessarily connected. So one does not reinforce the other. A good horror game, uh, I think, f- makes every decision you make feel like you're just making the situation worse. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, you know, we would do things like you press the button in the one of the levels and it, open, it says that it opens something up and now there's a monster. Um, by doing something, you're uh, unveiling some, or revealing something to your player character that she clearly is not comfortable with and, and things seem to be getting worse. And I like that tie-in. So that you almost want to not play the game because you're like, well, this is just going to go from bad to worse. And do I really want to be part of that? Gotcha. Interesting. That was a very, that was a very long winded answer. But that's the whole point of this, man. I'm learning so much more than I would have just outside of just kind of the standard, you know, casual observer. Sure. Have you ever played a game for the, uh, Mattel in television called advanced Dungeons and dragons? I have not. No. So that is, in my mind, one of the very first uh, survival horror games. Uh, it's from 1983, I think. Uh, and it's a game I played as a child that scared the crap out of me and um, is way ahead of its time because you look at a lot of like procedural roguelike uh, dungeon crawling games, and this game did it first. And Well, Rogue did it first, but this game sort of uh, took that idea Um and made something really cool of it, but it used sound design as a way to freak you out the way modern games like Resident Evil and Silent Hill and stuff do. Uh, and there's a lot of inspiration we took from that because that game has always stuck with me. You can play it now. It's just as freaky. Really? Despite the fact that it's so rudimentary because the way it's uh, it's handled uh, means that in order to do what you need to do and get what you want, you have to proceed. Proceeding is always dangerous. Proceeding is always kind of bad. And if you hear a sound, it's probably a bad thing but you probably also have to go closer to that sound. So you're always fighting your own urge to, to do what you, um, what you shouldn't do mm-hmm. uh, because you don't want to, but you have to. And, and that's... What's the name of it of again? Like, it's called Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. It's like one of the first licensed D&D games. Hmm. Um, nowadays, if, you, if there are Intellivision collections on uh, more modern consoles, I'm not sure if they released one on Xbox One, but I know they did on 360. Uh, it's often go- uh, goes under the name of Crown of Kings because the license reverted. Um, so they just take out the ADD license for it. Interesting. See, that's it's fascinating. That is really fascinating. I've, I'm super thrilled by that. I'm going to check that out. Very cool. Very cool. Well, Ben, before I, I as we close out the interview, I do want to kind of note, uh, I, it's Worse Than Death is an ID at Xbox title. And, and from my research, it's your first ID at Xbox title, first Xbox title overall. Why bring it over now? What was different about the IDX program now versus, uh, you know, a few years ago, potentially coming to other platforms? What what about Worse Than Death made it ideal for Xbox? Well, we met with people from Xbox over the past little while, um, and they've been very active in sort of speaking to members of the indie community. Uh, and the short answer is that they were just really cool. And we said, okay, well, we kind of want to, we want to be at this party now. It's like, this sounds awesome. Uh, you know, they're open, they had support, there was... Um, they're really excited to have us on the platform and they were honestly, they were incredibly cool to work with. Uh, we weren't sure what we were going to do in terms of platforms just because of time. And, you know, we were small, we had some plans, but, um, we basically talked to Xbox late in the game Mm -hmm. and we got the port done 
like from sort of agreeing, yes, we're going to go ahead and do this and launching a game on Xbox is like two and a half months. Oh, wow. Is it okay? Uh, so is it to, to a layman? Is it an easy transition from where you're initially building the game to port to, to Xbox or console space? Or does it are there more variables involved? Yeah, it was actually quite easy. So we hired someone to help us because our plates were sort of full just with managing the, the multiple, multiple launches we were already planning. But um, uh, we always plan games for multiple launches uh, from the get-go. So it's coded in such a way that it's flexible. Mm-hmm. We are anticipating, you know, detecting certain kinds of controllers and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and planning for all the sort of back-end programmer kind of stuff. Uh, but there were, a, there were a few kinks that were just different, you know, a few things that were just different with working with Xbox than something else. And we got those ironed out very quickly and everything else went super smooth. Um, and the team was honestly like incredibly good to work with. Sometimes I feel surprised because, you know, game industry is just a lot of people going around. Mm-hmm. Not everyone has time for such a small studio uh, as ours, but everyone at Xbox was was fantastic to work with. That's encouraging to hear because, you know, we talked earlier in the interview that you can get lost in the ether when you have so many different titles available. And as you say, you have these mega corporations versus kind of a smaller, smaller studio. It's nice to hear you were getting attention kind of on, on both fronts no matter what. Yeah, and you want, like I said, you need champions, and they were really good for us. The fact that they would take our phone calls or or phone us back and treat us like a regular developer um, and not give us uh, sort of like the second-class citizen treatment was fantastic. It just made us comfortable to be there. Um, And if you're on a platform where someone isn't paying attention to you or giving you the time of day or doesn't think that your content is important, it's easy to just think, well, maybe maybe we'll just hold off on this or not worry about this next time. Um, But they were so good to us that we were... Like we were feeling better about the decision uh, every day, and when we launched out there, I was just happy to be there. I was like, "Oh, this is great! Like this went really well, and the game looks good on Xbox, and like I like how it looks in the store." And everyone there was cool, and that's that's important too. And that's kind of how that that's how I came to to cross your name was was Player One Podcast and the Xbox Canada um, stream, just to see you kind of spotlighted there, and then it was you know reading the Xbox Wire and a few other places. It was. That's nice to hear, and I have to imagine that going forward, uh, doors remain open in that kind of aspect. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's you know there's Game Pass and there's lots of other opportunities there, and obviously we're in a we're now entering the transition year uh, for game consoles, mm-hmm. so things are going to be interesting over the next you know twelve months or so. But um, we're in a great spot to be on the platform now. Now that we sort of kind of know our way around and um, know people and we're excited to kind of just make new things and know that there is a home for it there on Xbox. Ben, I feel like I could pick your brain for for that much longer, but we do need to kind of close out. Uh, I, one, want to thank you so much for your time and then ask you to to let people know where they can find you, find your games, find your content on any platform. Yeah, so you can find out about all the games that we make, where they're available, what platforms they're available for at BenjaminRivers.com. I'm most active uh, on our Twitter account. We're all over the place. We're on Instagram. Uh, we're um, Sometimes we even stream, but Twitter at BenjaminRivers is the best place to find us. And you guys have Worse Than Death available on Xbox. Home is available on PlayStation and PC, I believe, as is Alone With You. Yeah, Home is uh, PlayStation, PlayStation Vita. Uh, yeah, Vita... Yeah, Vita means life. Uh, iOS, uh, PC and Mac. Alone with you is PC, Mac, PS4, PS Vita. Uh, and Worse Than Death is on all of those, almost. Plus the little console from the giant company with the red logo. <laughs> all right, Ben. Thank you so much for your time, man. 
Thanks so much for having me.